Are you cats talking about your Madison shoes? We're doing a thing we call the Madison Blues. We do the Madison Hello and welcome to episode 963 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by our Patreon supporters and the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello. Hey. Anything you want to talk about? Hmm. No, I don't think so. We didn't get to talk about the bumgarner Cindergard game. You tweeted that it was a good <laughs> baseball game. <laughs> I agreed. Uh-huh. <laughs> With your take. Uh-huh. Was that your favorite kind of playoff game? It's uh, uh, a good question. It, it, hmm. Is it different? Would my I, don't answer... know if, I don't know if a playoff game, if your favorite type of playoff game that's is what, different right, from Right, that's, that's the first thing I have to yeah. ask myself. I don't know. I mean, boy, probably not. Now, I mean, if I just think about what the two great games from last year were, they were the... Rangers uh, Blue Jays game where <laughs> Russell Martin threw the ball and it hit off of the the batter's bat and it was called a uh, errant throw and the runner got to advance remember that yeah mm-hmm. do I have some of those details right no I think that maybe you're talking <laughs> about the the crazy seventh inning in I am I am Rangers, I'm sp- Blue Jays game I'm specifically though talking about the ball off the bat uh, yes, that, that was maybe the craziest part of that inning. But uh, yeah, that was the craziest part of that inning. But um, it was a crazy inning, and uh, so I. And then the second game that uh, I remember the most, uh, and probably the game I remember more than any other. And I, I think at the time I'm, I might have said something very hyperbolic about it uh, being. I don't remember what I said, but I, I remember saying something crazy. Was the uh, Astros Royals game where? Oh yeah, with the Carlos Correa error. Yeah, exactly with the Carlos Correa error. And the Tony Sip face. <laughs> and so I would, and then, so then if I just sort of off the top of my head think about what other games I love, I loved the Bumgarner game seven, obviously, in uh, the, the World Series in 2014. And then uh, the game in 2013, game three between the Cardinals and the Red Sox in the World Series, where it ended on an obstruction call. There was basically a play at home, If in case people don't remember this, there was a play at home a second out of the inning was made, and then a runner tried to advance. I think maybe Alan Craig tried to advance to third. There was an errant throw, goes past the past the third baseman. Craig gets up and runs home, trips on the third baseman. Somebody corrals the ball in you know left field, throws Craig out at home by like six feet, but the umpire calls him, starts to call him out, and then calls him safe because of the obstruction at third, which nobody was paying attention to. Anyway, that was like the greatest game, greatest finish. That might have been the greatest finish to a game. So, so what, you just but want anyway, I'm craziness. Just right, crazy. <laughs> All those things have in common is craziness. Like even the yeah. Bumgarner game, it, it wouldn't have probably been my favorite except for the three-base air, or I guess it was a two-base air, and Alex Gordon having to decide whether to go home or not. And, <laughs> So I, I think I would say that I like the crazy games more. That's what I would mm-hmm. say. I, I like the crazy games more. So this was a fun game. This was in a regular season. I would say that this would be one, uh, my favorite kind of game. And it, it was one of my favorite kinds of games. I mean, I think this was one of the 25 greatest games I've ever seen. But it is not quite the most memorable. 
Uh, and it's not quite my favorite for that reason. It was great, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really great. There were definitely moments where I was, I don't know, I, I kind of wish that I was at home watching on TV, even though the atmosphere at the game was really great. I just kind of wanted a better look at where the catcher was set up and where the pitches were going and everything that you can really get from the third row of a press box. And there was a point in the middle of the game where it was just sort of a like a metronome, like, okay, now Bumgarner will get his three outs and then Syndergaard will get his three outs and it just sort of lulled you to sleep almost, but not really because they were both just pitching so well and so entertainingly. Where does uh, Bumgarner fall on the spectrum of like how we've talked about, you know, Kershaw to Cindergard or something, or or Kershaw, the, the Arietta spectrum where a guy can be really, really great without necessarily looking really, really great. Obviously, Cindergard looks greater than anyone in the world, probably. Where does Bumgarner fall in that for you? Hmm. Bumgarner is, it's a little easier to see because it's, so much of it is just deception. It's the, it's the angles and I can't see how difficult those angles are. I don't even get a good look at it from home because he's a left-hander throwing from, you know, what's basically an offset camera that blunts the angle of the left-hander. But, you ba- I mean, you know that that's what it is. And so I would say that, uh, well, it, I guess it kind of depends on whether you think Bumgarner is that good. I mean, how mm-hmm. many... Bumgarner... Postseason. Postseason, post-season he... Well, but as a pitcher, as a pitcher overall, until this year, I, I, I was not... You know, like, I thought he was great, but I thought he was maybe, like, the 18th to 20th best pitcher in baseball, maybe. And mm-hmm. now I think I probably would put him, like, you know, sixth or something like that. So I guess uh, I can answer this a little bit better. I would say, finally, to get to the, the answer, uh, do we have a scale? What's the scale? <laughs> Syndergaard is a 10, and hmm, I don't know. I mean, Arietta, Kershaw, they're not they're not ones. One would be no, like uh, Ker- one, one would be, be like right. Steve Traxel or something. Okay, so so I can see. Let's let's do a new scale. I can see 100% of Syndergaard's greatness. Okay. I can I can see maybe 80% of Kershaw's and maybe 84% of Arietta's, and I would say like 86% of Bumgarner's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, a lot of it does seem to be extension, but when he has pitched in the postseason, he's just been so incredibly efficient and just has not left the game ever, and he just keeps coming and coming and coming. So it was a really great game. So uh, Bumgarner, uh, give me an ERA from Bumgarner's uh, next 50 postseason innings. (laughs) Yeah, what is it so far? Sub two? So uh, It's actually, is it? Oh, I guess it is after last night. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's it 194 is. after last night. A lot of people don't remember this, but in 2012, he was sort of struggling coming into the postseason, and then he got hit really hard in both his NLDS and NLCS starts. And I believe that's why Barry Zito started Game 1, because uh, instead of Bumgarner or instead of anybody, because uh, Bruce Bochy didn't really like think anybody was doing that well and it was like oh well we'll just stick with the same rotation that we had in the nlcs so even though they could have uh, reset the rotation and had bumgarner starting bumgarner was seen as not being very good at that moment in time like he was he was a total mess in that postseason and then he threw seven shutout innings and in his last one two three four five six seven eight nine outings he's uh you know he's he's allowed six earned runs yeah probably 
I guess I would probably just bet on his recent regular season ERAs, which, uh, given that he'd be facing good teams and everything, is still really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So like a three, like a yeah. high, high twos or three. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That'd still make him the odds on favorite to be the best or second best postseason pitcher in a given year. Mm-hmm. And what is your favorite point of the postseason? Are you a wildcard game guy? Are you a World Series game guy? Or are you, I think, Maybe my favorite part is the NLDS, just uh, free-for-all when when all of the NLDSs are still going and you get the occasional day when there's like four games and you can just watch playoff baseball from midday to late night. That's I, probably my favorite part. I think that the LDS is my least favorite. Really? Yeah. Hmm. So you like the stakes? Yeah. One thing I like about the NLCS especially is that uh, the NLCS goes to Fox. Uh, the uh-huh. NL the NLDS I think stays on or the AL sorry the ALCS I think still stays on one of the cables but NLCS goes to Fox and to me real postseason baseball is the Fox intro it's mm-hmm. Joe Buck it's all the Fox graphics it's the 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 real you know the Fox commercials so instead of having your uh, Frank Caliendo's you get your Alicia Keys's uh-huh. uh, so I really I kick in at the NLCS uh, that's the moment when it starts to really feel like autumn to me. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So I guess I think I might be an NLCS guy. I don't know why I would like that more than the World Series. Yeah, well, but, you have two series going on, which is nice, instead of one. Uh-huh. I don't like a five-game set, particularly. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, I agree that uh, the later series are better, but having four series going on at once is, yeah. is having pretty two, great. Yeah, right, having two is enough that you have a game a, a day, though. You're, Every day. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right about the World Series. There's off days, so that's no fun, mm-hmm. especially if you're trying to put out a site. <laughs> yeah. It's such a bummer. Right. That was the worst yeah. day because there's nothing else going on in baseball. You don't yeah. have your fantasy focus. You don't have your rookie, you know, your prospect stuff, your top tens. You don't have any other games, and uh, you just have to fake it. Yeah, not your problem anymore. No. Let it go. You only have to worry about yourself now. So uh, as we've been talking, the Indians just brought in Andrew Miller in the fifth inning. Uh-huh. It's a real Sonoma Stompers move. Uh-huh. Fifth inning. That's early. I wrote about Andrew Miller's relief usage, as everyone has written about Andrew Miller's usage in Cleveland. But even when I wrote about it, the most extreme was sixth inning, but fifth inning. That is a, a new extreme. Yeah. We also wanted to sign Andrew Miller. So that's another Sonoma Stompers. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so should we talk a little bit about baseball that is going on this weekend? Neither of us has done the full-fledged series previews this year, which is a, a relief, at least for me personally. It's kind of nice to just focus on one aspect of each team or little things you find interesting instead of doing the the full thousands of words with listing every player on both teams and comparing rotation versus rotation or position by position. There's a place for all of that stuff, but I prefer that place not to be my keyboard. Oh, I miss that. So, I was telling RJ yesterday that it, huh? I, I miss it. I love the <laughs> I, I love <laughs> the series preview. I love spending 40 minutes uh, on the 25th spot on the roster. Definitely, it prepares you well for so the well, yeah. viewing experience. That's that's definitely true. But the actual producing it is not always my favorite. But anyway, we have uh, two series to talk about. And maybe, the, maybe one interesting question is whether you think the Cubs are actually the clear favorite. And maybe this is 
maybe this is a hot take, but it's not really because uh, the sites that have been running playoff roster-based projections, namely Fangraphs, actually have the Dodgers as the favorite based on who is actually on the team right now because the idea is that the Dodgers are the team that's maybe getting the greatest benefit from the playoff format and that you don't have to worry about the back of the rotation and, you know, the Dodgers rotation, which was good this year, had a bunch of Bud Norris and Ross Stripling and even more anonymous people popping up from time to time. And now they are down to Kershaw and Hill and Maeda, and that's basically all they need. And if they need someone else, then they have Orius, who's also really great. And I think it was Jeff Sullivan pointed out that based on the historical patterns or, you know, the the usage patterns, the way that teams have used, say, their number one starter, their number two starter, their closer in the postseason, in theory, they should be assigning 50% of their postseason innings to Kershaw, Hill, and Kenley Jansen, who I think those guys are in some order the fourth, sixth, and 21st best pitchers in baseball this year on a batter per batter basis by deserved run average. So basically three of the top 20 pitchers in baseball will be pitching half of the Dodgers innings. And based on Fangraph's projections using those rosters, whether you use the projected stats or the just 2016 stats, the Dodgers come out ahead of the Cubs. And that obviously wouldn't be the case if you just went by full regular season numbers, which most people have been. And that's how we think of the Cubs, really. They are the best team, clearly. But maybe the Dodgers get the postseason benefit if we believe that there is such a thing as a team that is well-constructed for the playoffs. That's convincing. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe. It kind of is. Obviously, the, the Cubs still have a lot going for them it's not it's not it's not as if they are hurt by the playoff format it's not as if like the top of the cubs rotation isn't also really good because it is and they've got a pretty good bullpen too but the dodgers and the the dodgers rotation and bullpen just based on who is actually going to be on the playoff roster grades out as better than the cubs in both cases i'm a little surprised that the first round opponents don't weigh more heavily for the cubs you mean in terms of like World Series odds or something? That's right. Yeah. Well, in that sense, it, it might. I, I think, uh, you know, Jeff's article about this was just going based on team quality. So if you had to say Nationals versus Giants, then maybe that would swing things toward the Cubs, although the Nationals are obviously missing a, a couple crucial players of their own. So once you take out Strasburg and Wilson Ramos, then I don't know, maybe they're not that much better than the Giants. Yeah. So do you think that the Cubs, uh, the Cubs obviously had by far the longest, uh, runway, runway? Is that a metaphor? Um, going into this, I mean, they were able to spend, you know, somewhere between the last month and the last five months getting ready for this. Mm-hmm. It was never, yeah. never remotely in doubt. They had the trade deadline where they could focus entirely on the playoffs. They had September where they were able to, uh, you know, even treat games like uh, practice and to, to, to run up to this. Uh, do you think that the Cubs did enough or do you think the Cubs did really anything that was different than they would have if they'd had, uh, you know, a half game lead on the Cardinals uh, the whole time? Mm. Well, I was listening to our friend Rob Arthur on 538's podcast, Hot Takedown, and they were asking him about the way that the Cubs kind of dipped in the middle of the year, like they were on that 
just all-time great trajectory, and then they dip to merely still the best team in baseball trajectory, but not really historically great. And maybe part of that was just, you know, your regular regression. But Rob was also saying that he thinks that Madden just kind of took it easy and, and rested guys a lot. I, I haven't looked at the usage patterns or anything to, to see, like, how many days off per week the typical Cubs starter got in the second half or anything like that. But Rob is a Cubs fan and watches the Cubs every day. So that was his impression of how Madden has managed this. So that would explain maybe part of why the Cubs fell off that early pace just a little bit. As far as like anything they could have done to prepare for the postseason, I don't know. They made the bullpen moves that they made at midseason. That seemed like the place where they could improve themselves. And they got Chapman and they got Montgomery and they got better in that area. And I don't know what else there is that you can do, really. Do you think that uh, this is? I mean, look, this is. Uh, if I if I'd had any any guts, I would have you know written this on July fifteenth, not now. But uh, do you think that it is in any way a failure that you know, say, like Jason Hamill is on this team, uh, and that they didn't instead? I mean, if if you're trading with October in mind, and that you don't have to worry about the second half uh, playoff run at all. If you don't need a fifth starter, it doesn't really seem like Hamill factors into their plans at all. And he was an asset that they probably could have uh, traded for, you know, something not bad uh, at the deadline. Or is it more likely that, um, you know, the sorts of teams that would have been interested in Hamill would certainly not have been giving them value that they could have applied to this year's team anyway, uh, and that it's just too radical, and that you it also depends on your front four staying healthy, uh, and right. that if they hadn't, um, you know, the, the fact that you carry insurance does make you a loser when you don't get in a car crash. Mm-hmm. That that would have been a pretty bold move. Yeah, no, and I'm not even I'm like, not even suggesting I'm not like that, so I'm, good. I'm mentioning it more as almost like thought experiment, like in yeah. fact exclusively as like thought experiment. But I'm just trying to I'm sort of just trying to figure out uh, if you had a single minded goal of being you know if you figure well we're two percent better than the Dodgers right now and like all that matters is that we be better than them in three months and the Dodgers have to worry about the Giants and uh, and even worry about the Nationals because they're trying to get home field and you don't. Uh, is there anything you could have done? Is there anything that they could have done? Could this season have been uh, run any differently because uh, the Cubs are a really good team and, and it sort of seems disappointing to have you tell me now that they're not even the favorite. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't like that. <laughs> Yeah, well, I I would have loved the uh, confidence of trading a, a good starter just because you don't, you don't need him in the playoffs and you know that you're going to make the playoffs. So that would have uh, I would have liked it, but probably not a smart thing to do. I mean, just look at like what happened to the Mets rotation from opening day to the playoffs. I mean, if they had made it past the wild card game, it would have been Syndergaard, Cologne, and you know a bunch of guys that probably no one had heard of on opening day. So yeah. I don't think the Cubs had enough rotation depth that they could have afforded to do that because it's not like they are sitting around with like three good starters right now who are not going to be on the playoff roster. Like if they had lost one of their front four, then they might use Hamill, right? So I don't think there was enough uh, depth there. And I don't know where they could have made themselves that much better. What could they have done, really? I mean... They needed Jason Hayward to start hitting, yeah. but that never happened. And, uh, you know, it's not like Jason Hayward is a guy you can just drop and pick someone else up because he signed for a really long time. So other than that, there is 
no weak point on the team particularly. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, I don't know. You could have just traded Hamill for some other re- reliever, I guess, but you wouldn't have gotten like a, a really impressive late inning guy probably for him. So They should have traded uh, – should... <laughs> why would I say this? Do I, do I say it, Ben? Do I say it? I don't know. I, I'm curious. They should have just traded Arietta for Rich Hill, and then they could have <laughs> then they could have kept Rich Hill from the Dodgers, and then they would have a uh-huh. lefty to send up against the Dodgers who can't hit lefties. And uh, sure, you lose Arietta. I mean, that's that would be heartbreaking for sure. But you know, but you get Rich Hill. It's like a, it's basically probably something close to a push for uh, for the next three weeks between uh-huh. those two. And uh, yeah. the Dodgers don't have Rich Hill. You'd have to make a. You'd have to make the A's promise that they wouldn't trade Arietta. To... <laughs> so, yeah. wh- what do you think, Ben? Should I have said it? Mm, yeah, I'm glad you said it. All right. <laughs> did you have any thoughts on? Uh, did you hear Andy and Pedro's debate about the Dodgers rotation? And I assume that you're in the uh, start Rich Hill as often as you possibly can camp. I actually, I did. That's the one episode I've not heard. Oh well. The debate was basically because of Kershaw's, you know, missing all that time and then being eased back into the rotation and then Rich Hill just being fragile and having blisters that are about to heat up at any moment. Would you use either of those guys on short rest? Would you wait until the time comes and ask them if they want to go on short rest? Or would you just put in Urias or something, even though you're trying to limit his innings i really would have to have some like risk factor that i can multiply everything by i Mm -hmm. almost generally almost pretty much almost always if there's any discussion about whether a guy should go on short rest i say the answer is no like i i'm not a short rest guy at all i think it's one of the uh, most predictable and frustrating mistakes that we all make every single year and it just is I mean like the numbers feel pretty convincing to me. They've been pretty convincing for like the last seven years. Pitchers who pitch on short rest are just not as good as you think they are. They're a lot worse uh, than they uh, than they otherwise are. And mm-hmm. so that doesn't mean never do it, but it means do it when the guy is Kershaw and the other option is Ricky Nolasco. So if the guy is you know I mean we've we've fulfilled half of that. The guy is Kershaw. But I presume there's more risk now, like Heron said, Dan Heron in, in the uh, podcast, in the episode of Sports Writers Blues that I did listen to. I think he said that he, <laughs> he said he wouldn't use Kershaw on short rest. And he goes, I mean, unless you're down 2-1, which is the only time you would ever use him. <laughs> like, that's the only time they ever get used. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's the only, like, there's only like, like, like four ways for a five game series to go. Uh, so I'm not actually sure where Heron comes down on this, but he seemed the tone of his voice was that um, there was there is more you know he'd be warier of it than usual with Kershaw, and I'm presuming that that's probably true. Heron's had a similar injury, and then with Hill, you know they I don't know they wouldn't let, wouldn't let him go for a perfect game, Ben. <laughs> I don't. So I don't know. I, maybe they weren't letting him go for the perfect game because so they, they this, wanted yeah. him to do the. I mean, rest. really, like it would be like my answer might be different if if I knew that there was zero extra risk on account of their recent unavailabilities. But even still, Urias is good to me. That's not in Alaska. You have not fulfilled the second half of that equation. And uh, as as long as I don't have a reason to think that Urias is exhausted or losing effectiveness. 
uh, or something like that, I think I would just go for it. I, I would let him pitch. I, I think that's mm-hmm. usually if there's any, like I said, if there's any, if there's any torment over the decision, it's usually that you should, I, I think that you should just go with the, the guy who's on full rest. When Andy and Dan Heron were talking uh, to Andy, it brought up, <laughs> did you listen to that one? I haven't yet, no. I don't, I, I, I feel bad just repeating another guy's joke. <laughs> or another guy's funny anecdote, but Heron was talking about how uh, he was his his year with the Dodgers. He was lined up to be the game four starter, and the Dodgers fell behind two one. And he was like, he's like, come on, pitch Kershaw, pitch Kershaw. And uh, so then you know the man, manager calls him in to the office. Manningly calls him into the office and tells him, yeah, you know, I'm gonna go with. Kershaw instead of you and Heron had to like kind of act disappointed and act like he didn't like oh, oh well, whatever and uh and really he's like oh, thank goodness <laughs> so yeah uh, so that uh, that's why people don't uh, generally repeat other people's funny anecdotes um but uh anyway Andy brought up the question of of the room whether you can really go into the room and say to the team yeah. we're starting you know Nolasco or or even 20 year old Orius instead of the greatest pitcher uh, that most of us have ever seen. I, I shouldn't say that. The greatest pitcher right now. I'll say that. Uh, mm-hmm. And I wonder how much of a factor that is. I wonder uh, how much you, I mean, you. they are investing a lot in keeping the team really fired up and focused right now. And mm-hmm. I wonder if uh, it's harder to make hard moves in the postseason. And I wonder how often... Uh, the manager makes that decision because it's just a lot less complicated. Yeah, I've uh, I've always thought that you know, like there there would be almost some benefit to just having some neutral, impartial party in your dugout during postseason games that could just make really unpopular decisions, and like the manager just uh, could blame it on on that person. I, I don't I haven't worked out exactly how this would work, but I just mean that like there are those times in games and all of these decisions get magnified in importance at this time of year. And there are times when you really might want to take that starter out or whatever, even though he's pitching well and maybe you just can't or it's difficult to because he's your ace and he's your team leader or whatever loyalty whatever it is and it might actually benefit your team to make a move that would be unpopular or uncomfortable to make but the starting someone on short rest argument is i guess it's kind of like the third time through the order penalty argument that we have every year because it's sort of the same like the reason that we recommend that managers take starters out before they face the third time through the order or at least be more willing to is because they're not really the same guy anymore and it it might be Clayton Kershaw on the mound and you think oh it's Clayton Kershaw but it's not really Clayton Kershaw it's not really the first inning Clayton Kershaw anymore or the second inning Clayton Kershaw it's now a lesser Clayton Kershaw because the hitters have seen him all the time and I mean he's still great but he's not quite the same guy and maybe it's similar with short rest where we think like, well, of course, if you have Clayton Kershaw or you have an ace, then you want that guy. But that guy is not really the guy that you know, because he's not on regular rest. So you kind of uh, can get deceived by just looking at the name and the uniform number and thinking that this is the, the guy you know from the full season, whereas he is actually handicapped or, you know, in some way he is, he's not his usual self. Mm hmm. 
How's uh, how's Andrew Miller doing? Andrew Miller has only gotten one out so far, mm-hmm. but uh, he is in there maybe for as many as three innings. So we'll see. Or people who are already listening to this have already seen. So one last thought on Bumgarner: when uh, people cite the fun facts about Bumgarner postseason stats, someone else invariably replies, "Well, yeah, but you know he's had the chance to rack up these postseason stats because." Player X, who had great postseason stats in an earlier era, didn't have wildcard games and maybe just had one playoff round or two playoff rounds. So you can't really compare across eras. And obviously that's true to a certain extent. But when you are making the Hall of Fame case for a player, which, you know, is way down the road for Bumgarner, obviously, but he is already, you know, unless he turns into a massive choker for the rest of his career or something, he has already established the credentials that would get a guy into the Hall of Fame if he were a borderline regular season candidate. How would you evaluate a great postseason performer who played in the, you know, four playoff round, basically, era? Do you think about it as he had so many opportunities, so you have to downgrade what he did? Or do you just think, no, he had the opportunities and he made the most of them? We talked about this with David Ortiz, I think, and we came up with a number for how many war a win probability added in the postseason was worth to us. And I feel like win probability added is a, you know, can be a misleading stat. But for one thing, it's against average. It's not against replacement level. So you don't get a big benefit to having, like, it's not, it's, it's not one of the counting stats where, like, simply by showing up, you're going to just rack up big numbers. Uh, because, you know, it's against average. You have to actually be really good. So it's, it's actually hard to add to collect a ton of win probability added in your career. Mariano Rivera is, like, so far off the graph. Uh, and then you're talking about, guy, like, I think Ortiz was at, like, four wins. And I think that Kurt Schilling was, like, the number two pitcher ever. And he was, like, two and a half or three wins at that point. Um, and I don't know what Bumgarner is. And I don't even know if any of my numbers are right. But it's, like, you know, you're like a good, like, a really good postseason career. You're talking about, like, two to four wins, I think. Like, the Beltrons, the Ortizes, the Schillings, the Bumgarners. We, so we came up with a number for how much each win would be. And I think it was something like nine. And I stand by that. Like, to me, if you're a starter and you manage to somehow collect, you know, five wins by win probability added in your postseason career, I don't know. I mean, maybe you you need, maybe at the upper ends that's too much. But, like, I, Brendan Golosky and, uh, and Meg, uh, Meg Rowley did a Hall of Fame draft recently based on the premise that there are 25 active Hall of Famers at any given time, usually, on average. So they did a 25-round draft where they each tried to pick who the Hall of Famers are, and, you know, the first few were easy, and then they had to get speculative, and I really liked that piece a lot, and I also said that um, that I disagreed with where Bumgarner went. He went in, like, the 18th or 19th round. I said, I think he'll make it if he gets to, like, 42 war, and I think that is true. I think he will make it if he gets, like, 42 war. He's, like, in the high 20s right now. I think he's perceived to be better than that as it is, I think he gets a boost from his ballpark. But I think that, you know, there's a perception that he's better than a 25 to 30 win player in his career already. Uh, and I think if he gets to something like in the 40s, like I don't think he'll he's likely to land on exactly 42. Uh, but I think he's going to get a big boost from this. Um, and uh, he's, you know, he's almost there. I think he's almost there. Like I, I, would, I would guess that if he has another nine years in, in him, it almost doesn't matter what he does in those nine years. He'll get there. Mm-hmm. Are you asking yeah. me to now make a judgment on whether I think that's good or bad? Is that what you want from me? 
Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's probably I I like the concept and I think that it it's probably a little it's in danger of being maybe a little overdone for Bumgarner. Yeah. Well, the problem with it is that when we evaluate who should make the Hall of Fame, we always talk about the historical standards for what a Hall of Famer is. And we compare the stats and you have the Jaws system and all of that. And, you know, each position has an average score that the Hall of Famers have. And so it's tough when you get into playoff stuff because the majority of the players in the Hall of Fame came before this, you know, many rounds playoff era. And so it's hard to know exactly how to weight that given that modern players have so much more opportunity the thing that i don't like uh maybe the thing that makes it dangerous to me is that you're when you start weighing things like that that are you know basically scarce events and a few a few games matter they actually do matter a great deal more and so that's why you do it but when you have a few games matter way more than other games like for instance if madison bumgarner had gone out last night madison bumgarner by the way has 2.865, so 2.9 win pro- wins by win probability added in his career. So I think that he's, he is, so Schilling was at 4, 4, 4.0. So he's getting close to Schilling. Schilling started 19 games in the postseason with a 2.23 ERA. So anyway, what I was saying with Bumgarner is that if he had gone, if, if he had had a bad start last night, then we're not talking about this anymore. And I, I don't really like Hall of Fame cases that hinge on one day going the way it did or one day not yeah. going the way it did. It's the same reason I don't like the Zach Britton Cy Young case uh-huh. because, you know, like I said, we were talking about it because he had had, you know, one one single with runners on second and third didn't fall. And yeah. it feels a, a little much to give somebody the MVP when one plate appearance could have undone his case. And so that's why I just sort of am more comfortable giving it to somebody who through 220 innings. Um, so maybe that's why I think it's particularly dangerous with Bumgarner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, by the way, if anyone wants to check it out, Dan Hirsch at the Baseball Gauge, seamheads.com slash baseball gauge, has a postseason leaderboard of uh, you can look at it by series win probability added or by championship win probability added. And Bumgarner is fourth all time right now. He is behind Rivera, Raleigh Fingers, Pete Rose, and and no one. He is fourth, and he has added over one championship. <laughs> and this is, you know, just looking at, I mean, it's, it's win probability added, but it's counting how much the game mattered and, you know, where in the series it was and everything. So, like, his his start last night was not that valuable by championship win probability added just because it was a wild card game and they still have to win three more series. So it didn't actually improve their odds that much. Like it doubled their odds, but their odds are still pretty low. So I think that was only worth like 0.06 of a championship, but he is at 1.09 lifetime. And if he has one good wow. start he against... Is, he has won an entire yeah. championship. Yes. That's cool. <laughs> yes. That's a good stat. If, yeah, if he has one start, if he has a, a good start against the Cubs next week, he will be second all time on this list to Mariano Rivera. Wow. So that's you know, pretty good. It's really yeah. impressive for a guy who just turned twenty seven recently. So I need you. I I need you to give me a WAR number. Give me a, a, a postseason win to regular season win conversion. I think that nine <laughs> or ten or whatever I speculated we might have said in thinking about it. I don't think we did say that high. I think that's too high. I think it's too high, yeah. So, Beltron, by the way, 2.7. 
win probability added in the postseason in his career. Yeah. Greatest, you know, greatest postseason hitter there ever was. And David Ortiz, who has uh, almost 400 plate appearances in the postseason, has 3.3 wins. So that's kind of your upper limit. Uh, so how many wins extra do you give David Ortiz for his 3.3? <sighs> Man, I'm I'm trying to think of whether there would be like a a middle ground. And by the way, like uh, Beltron in in championship win probability added is like 57th or something, just because I think he's only made one World Series, so that didn't you know his his hits didn't have as huge an impact in that sense. But by series win probability added, which is just whatever series you did it in, he is ninth ninth all time, and Bumgarner is third all time. By the way. So is there a middle ground between just saying, well, wins are wins, and so you you just get credit for how many wins it was? Wait, it what? You're going to get what? No, you don't think but that. Is there a middle ground, but is there a middle ground between that and championship win probability added, which is like, <laughs> I don't know what the multiplier there would be, but like huge because yeah, just, you know, it's... based on on the context and when you did well, it based on so I'm trying to think yeah, of like based on what the logic would be for a middle amount. Like if you're, if you're saying that it matters more then shouldn't you count how much more it matters. And it really, it, it matters like in order of magnitude more. I mean, it, it, if it, in terms of like contributing toward a championship, it's, it's hugely more important than a regular season war is, but it, still seems too inflated to give you that much credit for it so you are but you are using it as i mean you know you're using a stat i don't (laughs) i don't accept i Uh i don't i don't think i think that it's very cool what bumgarner uh that he has won a championship by that measure i don't think that you can compare postseason win probability championship probability added and regular season win championship probability added for the reasons i laid out I don't think that. Right. I, I think there's an elusive, an, an illusion right. going on there. Well, so but then, that said, so, so what is the logic for counting it more than? Is it because it's more the, important? The competition. It's cooler. It's more important. It is more. <laughs> but, but isn't that basically the championship? Would yeah, no, it is. Argument? It is. I think that the the, the the specific nature of the calculation okay. is is bad uh-huh. science. Is I, I don't want to say bad science because I don't. I think it is. It is fun and it is descriptive. Yeah. But I think that. It's not right. right. <laughs> That's all. Yeah. I don't uh-huh. know how to put okay. it. I don't know how to put it in a way that accurately reflects what I feel because it, sorry. Yeah, I know what you mean. But yeah, so I mean, are we giving credit for, I mean, either way, we're, we're giving credit for timing, which is not what you do when you're trying to evaluate someone's talent. It's going completely in the other direction. So I I don't know. It's It's purely opportunity and timing and context based, right? Like it's just, Hmm. I mean, if you get better, if you hit better in the postseason than you do in the regular season, it's more impressive because the competition is greater and everything. But it, I mean, it doesn't necessarily make you think the the player is way better in the postseason. It might just be that he had a hot streak in the postseason or something. That That is very fair. And you can also reward that guy though. If you, if you want, if you want, you can choose to. You get to you get to prioritize what you prioritize, and yeah, I mean, if uh, David Ortiz had never played in the postseason, then it's a different. It is definitely a different conversation about his career, and I'm sure. perfectly happy. Even knowing that, I'm perfectly happy saying that he's you know he's the guy who 
had all those home runs, and he's all of Amer. But mm. that's fine. Yeah, you're right. That is tricky. And yeah. I just want your number, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. I'll just uh, going by gut feel. I'll say four. Uh, a, post, yeah. a postseason win is four times more important. That's good. I was uh, I was maybe thinking like six on the high end. Like, would you uh-huh. if a guy were uh, if if you had? Yeah, I don't I don't really want to rephrase the question. I just wanted your number. Four is good. Four is good. We'll, we'll go with four. <laughs> All right. All right, that's it for today. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have done so already, Andrew Danoff, Alex Conway, Jeff Fang, J.P. Shavransky, and Mark Eschen. Thank you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild. Playoff time is a good time to be in the group. Lots of very active game threads going on during the action. You can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription to the Play Index by going to baseballreference.com and using the coupon code BP. And, of course, you can buy our book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, our wild experiment building a new kind of baseball team. Go to theonlyruleisithastowork.com for more information. And if you liked it, leave us a review at Amazon and Goodreads. I'll have a new episode of the Ringer MLB show up today. Michael Babin and I talked to an advanced scout for the Royals about how preparing for the playoffs works, which was fascinating to us, perhaps also to you. You can contact me and Sam via email at podcast at baseballperspectus.com or by messaging us through Patreon. Have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back next week. And they carried on like long division, as it was clear with every